Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Eric Reinhold's backyard, right near the Smoke on the Water Pier. And Brett, when Kay and I first conceptualized this podcast back in, I want to say it was 2019, probably September of 2019, maybe August. We just did a brain dump of everyone that we, we just looked through people and looked through Kay's phone and looked through posts. And your name was one of those names that popped up on that very first list. And wow. I've been waiting for you to get your ass to Colorado. <laughs> so I got to come to Orlando in order to get this thing done. Well, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> so first question, what you smoking? I am smoking a Stillwell Navy Stillwell 1056 cigars, very nice. I had one last night. Eric gave me one. Eric, it's got, Eric it's got gave the, me this one. Yep. It's, it's navy, and of it's got course. the stars, it's got the navy colors, and so, yeah, that's that's one of his go-tos. He gave me one, and I had it last night. It's it was a, nice a solid smoke. stick. It's a nice smoke. Yep. A solid stick. And then I'm smoking an Oliva Siri V, and so I've got a handful still in my humidor from a box that I bought Amen. on Cigar Bid, and so... This one's just a good one. This one's just a nice one to finish off the smooth. night for the last one for the night. Very smooth. So, Brett, where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, mostly outside of Boston. So I'm a big uh, Boston sports fan and rooting for my Red Sox right now. Heartbroken <laughs> over my Bruins, but uh, rooting for my Red Sox. What kind of family did you grow up in? I grew up in a great family. My parents, both very, very godly people and... Um, Grew up in a church called Grace Chapel where Gordon McDonald was the pastor and just had a great upbringing with a dad that one of my earliest memories is coming downstairs early on a on a Saturday morning when I was probably six or seven years old and I wanted to watch cartoons and I couldn't because my dad had a small group going in the in the family room at 630 in the morning with a bunch of young men that he was discipling. So Mm. that's sort of my my legacy. Siblings? Uh, older sister, four years older than me, just the two of us. What'd your parents do? My dad worked in the Boston Financial District, eventually in Wall Street in the okay. financial district. He was on the marketing side of things. Yeah. And uh, so I had a great, great upbringing. What were you into in school? Yeah, I loved, actually, I loved school. I was a, yeah. I was a decent student, and, uh, but my love was football. I loved playing football and played football all the way from Pop Warner till two weeks into my college and then that was the end of my football career when I got hurt playing football. Yeah. Free safety, right? Uh, linebacker in oh. high school, free safety in college. Yeah. I was too small to play linebacker in college. Yeah. At Tufts. Tufts University, yep. Which, where is Tufts? It's in Medford, Mass, which is just on the outskirts of Boston. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you study there? I got a degree in psychology and uh, I spent most of my time, though, hanging out with fraternity brothers. So, what did you want to do growing up? I wanted to be a doctor, and really? uh, I did. I, w- I went to Tufts really with the desire to go to med school and the head injury. And between the head injury and organic chemistry, that pretty pretty much put my medical uh, career uh, to bed. And uh, so I ended up in psychology, and I loved it. I've I've used that in different jobs that I've had. So some directly and a lot indirectly. I don't know if I've ever said this in the podcast, but chemistry is one subject that came so easy to me. I It came just so easy and natural. It like, was too much math for me. I, I, I remember <laughs> my senior year of high school in advanced chemistry. Mm. It was uh, the, the whole second semester was all organic chemistry. And I showed up for the final I was the first one to turn my paper in, my, my final in, turned it in, went in the back, and I don't know, probably had a USA Today or something. I was, I was reading whatever, and I'm going through it, and my chemistry teacher comes up to me. He walks, he kind of, Steve, waves me up. I go up, and I'm like, uh, what's up? He's like, how long did you study for this? I didn't. You didn't? No. I just skimmed things over, and yeah, I'm good. You got none wrong. I'm like, oh, cool. All right. And he was that that whole last week of school, he kept trying to tell me, you really should consider chemistry. You really should. You could get a job at a paper mill in central Wisconsin. You'd be making, I think it was like $75,000, which in the early 90s is is some good money. Yeah. And that's your starting pay. And you'll be able to make some really good money. And I'm like, ah, 
Yeah. So you turned okay. down the paper mill life, huh? Oh, God. <laughs> Anyone that's ever, you ever driven through a paper mill town? Uh, Jacksonville used to be a paper mill town. I've driven through. Yeah. I've driven through that stinks. smell. That <laughs> stank. That stank. <laughs> that I would never want to get used to nose right. blind to. Yeah. I would never want to get nose blind to that. Because then it's like, you. what else am I going to be nose blind to? <laughs> In the middle of a crowd, rip a little one that's nice and quiet, and I'm fine. Everyone else is like, oh. So, psychology. Yeah. Since you couldn't get into meds, since you yeah. didn't. I, well, I worked, in a, I worked in a psych hospital, actually, my really? senior year of college, and then for a little bit after college, and I worked with adolescents in a, on a psych floor, and I couldn't handle the emotional attachment that I had to the kids. And it was just, it was really, really hard. And I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I tried my hand in my dad's field. So I went to work for a broker. I went, went to work for a mutual fund company and then for a broker and realized I really didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I ended up back. My parents at that point had moved to um, Fairfield, Connecticut, outside of New yeah. York City, basically. And yeah. uh, so I, I got a job at a juvenile detention shelter. So I ran basically a group home for uh, kids whose parents had kicked them out. So they weren't delinquent, but they they were difficult. And I ran a 10-bed, co-ed, non-secure detention shelter. Co-ed. For a couple of years. And that's what I was doing when, when I met my wife. How'd you meet your wife? At church. You know, I, I joke, I say I went to college and I majored in um, fraternity and got a degree in psychology. And uh, so I had, I had a great time with my fraternity brothers so I, I worked in the juvenile detention shelter. I had this psychology degree, and I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But I, So I, I was living with my parents again, and I wasn't really, I sort of walked away from my faith. Hmm. And my parents were going to this church, and so just to be polite, I went to this church. I got kind of bamboozled into joining this young adult choir, and there was this really loud, obnoxious, vivacious, blonde alto that I couldn't stand. And then I found out she was the preacher's daughter, and then I really couldn't stand her. And then about three weeks after I found out she was the preacher's daughter, we started dating. So, <laughs> How did that change from <laughs> you couldn't stand her to all of a sudden your, I your don't interest know. has peaked? I don't know. I just, you know, your heart changes, and, and uh, I, I spent some time with her. I found out that the... The vivaciousness wasn't an act. You know, she wasn't playing the part of the preacher's daughter. That's just who she was. And we fell in love quickly. So we, I met her in September. We started dating in, in November. And at Christmas, we were looking for rings. Got engaged on Valentine's Day. Married in August. So I didn't even know her a year when we got married. And we both agreed that was probably a good thing. That we, did, we didn't know each other that well. Because we had to figure each other out in our first years of marriage. And Was it rough? It was brutal. Um, so? Well, firstly, I, I moved her from Connecticut down to Florida right after we got married. My dad had started a little um, firm in Orlando, wanted to try his hand as an entrepreneur. So I, I came down to help him. I'd sort of gotten my, my faith life was, was getting back on track. My wife, it was interesting because my wife was kind of in the same boat that I was. She'd really? grown up in a Christian yeah. family. But, you know, when you're in that, when you're in the, the church culture, Nonstop. I think you just you take so much for granted. I can't really explain it, but I just I'd I'd gotten so lukewarm, and and she had to she had seen a lot. You know, being in a pastor's family, at least in back then, it was a great way to have a lot of church hurt. And you know, she had seen her dad go through some stuff, and he's a great guy. I hit the father-in-law lottery when I married her, and I love my my father-in-law. He's still alive today, ninety-one years old, and still hmm. preaching on yeah. occasion, and. Yeah, so we so we kind of took that journey back into faith together and um, joined a little church in, in uh, north of Orlando and sort of got our lives back on track together. Yeah, it was cool. It's very cool. So she was she was miserable though. I had moved her away from everybody, and you know we both had expectations of what marriage was supposed to be like, and both of us were pretty disappointed with each other. So we went through some rocky times, and. I ended up uh, a, a couple steps. I worked for a homeless shelter. I ran a homeless shelter for a while. Mm-hmm. And, While working for your dad or after? No, I worked for my dad. My, my plan all along was to go to a seminary and get a counseling degree. And there's a seminary in Orlando that I was that had a really great counseling program. Yeah. But I, just, I never made it. I never got there. So I, I got this job. My dad left. He was not an entrepreneur. 
and uh, didn't have that wiring. And I got a job at a homeless shelter and they advertised it as a shift manager. But what it really was, it was the operations manager for the whole shelter. They just wanted somebody that would be willing to do the work. So I ran a 700 bed um, homeless shelter for a few years and um, built, we built a new shelter while I was there. And it was a great place. We, we had the first Girl Scout troop ever in, inside a homeless shelter. We had a Boys and Girls Club on site. We, you know, we did all the other stuff, drug treatment and GED and all that kind of stuff. And so um, working there for a couple of years, we sort of coalesced. We got into a, we're in a good church for a while, ended up in another church. And it was in that church that I kind of fell away again. I, I had started a software company with that sort of came out of the social service sector. That's a long story, but yeah. Um, I had started a software company with a few friends in the late 90s, and I was traveling all the time. I was just gone constantly. At this point, we ended up, we had two toddlers at home, and um, I kind of had a turning point in, in 1999. I, um, we're, I was getting this company up and running. We'd grown from six to 36 employees. I was just working as hard as I could, and one day I called my wife to let her know that I had another last-minute business trip. And she said a sentence that's changed my life. She said, that's okay. It's easier when you're not here. And I thought, that's not a good thing to hear your wife say. And so I got home that night and I said, what do you mean it's easier when, you're, when I'm not here? And she said, look, I get it. You're trying to build this company, but you know, you've left us behind. And Ooh. we uh, usually leave in the morning before they get up. Oftentimes you don't get home at night until they're already in bed. You're traveling all the time. When you're home, you're grumpy because you're so exhausted and the only time we have a good conversation is when you're a thousand miles away in a hotel room and we can talk on the phone uninterrupted. And mm. so, you know, go on your trip. We'll be fine. And fine is not a word you ever want to hear your wife say. <laughs> so I, did, I really didn't know what to do. And a buddy of mine, my, my wife was in a small group with a bunch of women and we were serving in ministry together. In fact, it, it was crazy. We were going to a mega church that had seven services a weekend. We'd gotten super involved in the children's ministry together. And so oftentimes we would lead worship or help out with a large group teaching. I was doing puppets and skits and all that kind of stuff. And so I found myself in this weird cycle of abandoning my family during the week to work and then rushing home on the weekend to minister to other people's kids. And then Monday, abandoning my family again for the week. Mm. And anybody at our church would have looked at us and thought we were great. You know, here's this young guy, he's an entrepreneur, he's got a software company, late 90s, great time to have a software company. Yeah. And um, two toe-headed kids that were great and a beautiful wife, but they wouldn't know that we were barely communicating and really struggling. And I didn't know what to do. And so um, my wife was in a women's group. One of the guys called me up and said, hey, we're going to get the men together and have our own small group. Um, if for no other reason than just to protect ourselves, because we're pretty sure they're talking about us. So we started this men's group and I, and I said, well, that's great. I, I need something like this. What are we going to do? I grew up in the church. You got to do something in a small group. And so they said, I don't know. They handed out some book in church a few weeks ago, a men's book. Just grab that book and bring it. And so that book was the man in the mirror. And so uh, I grabbed the book. I read the first chapter. It's called The Rat Race. I knew, I knew what that was about. The second chapter, Leading an Unexamined Life. I'm like, wow. And then I read the third chapter and it was, are you a biblical Christian or a cultural Christian? And at this point, I was like, this guy wrote a book about me, you know? And I've heard that story over and over again from guys that have read that book. His book is about me. And so I just, I, I dove into it with those guys. And we were about four or five weeks, maybe six weeks into the group. And we were having these conversations where we would sit around and we would say, you know, how's your week? Oh, I had such a blessed week. It was so wonderful. God really blessed me this week. How was your week? Oh, you know, I had a difficult week, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens oh, me. God. And I just wanted to oh, puke God. on the table. And so oh, I remember God. distinctly after a, little, a round of this, I threw my book on the table and I said some cuss words and I said, I, I can't do this. And one of the guys was like, what's wrong? What are you talking about? And I said, uh, I said, you guys are sitting around like everything's great. And my marriage is falling apart and my business is, is really struggling. And like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And I'm sitting here and you guys are just making like, everything's great in the Christian life and I'm dying. So this group either gets real right now or I'm done. And 
What they didn't know is I meant done. Like I was, I was just, I was going to quit church. I was just going to, I was just going to leave and, and, and try to figure things. And that would have been a yeah. tragedy. So the guy next to me said, I can't believe you said that. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And he go, and I go, what? And he goes, well, I've been really struggling with porn and nobody knows about it. And the next guy said, yeah, you know, my business is really struggling too. And the next guy said, my marriage is falling apart too. We've both been married twice and we can't trust each other. And the next guy said, I just took out a second mortgage on my house to make payroll in my company and my wife doesn't know about it. And so we go around the wow. table and everybody's struggling. Yeah, Everybody's a leader in the church. And then we get to the last guy, Jim, and he's got the book. He's holding the book in front of his face and his eyes are like saucers. And he goes, uh... I'm actually doing pretty good. And we, we're like, what? And he goes, yeah, like, I'm not sure I should even be in this group with you guys, you know? And we're like, Jim, you can't leave. You're our only hope, you know? You're the only, you're showing us that this, I, this works. This can actually work. And so from that moment, those guys, we just locked arms and we dealt with our stuff and we held each other accountable. And they asked me a lot of questions about my business and my work. And the next week they asked to see my travel schedule. And I said, what do you mean? They're like, we want to see your travel schedule. So I, I'm like, all right, I'll bring my travel schedule the next week. So I brought it the next week and I laid it out. And they're like, you, you're traveling too much. You have too many trips. Which, which of these can you cancel? And I'm like, I, I, I can't. They're like, no, 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 you have to. Like your, your family's more important than your business. You have to cancel half these trips. And I'm like, well, you guys suck. I can't. I mean, I can't. And they're like, no, you have to. And that's what the group was like from that point on. Wow. You know, we just, when a guy said something that it was, you know, complaining or too hard, the guys were like, all right, that's great. How, how can we work on this together? How can we trust God together? Yeah. And about four or five months into the group. How I, important was that? Yeah. I mean, I mean how, how big of a step was it for you to break against the vibe in the room of the blessed Christian life? Yeah. Where did that come from? Did it come from this place of just absolute raw pain, or have have you done that in the I past? Just, I, I mean, mean, I'm not a, I'm not a. Are, are you natural? I can be pretty straightforward. I, but it really just came from a place of, like, this is it. This is. I just had this sense that, like, if I don't figure this out now, I don't know if I'm going to be able to figure it out. So, I mean, I, and, and not to be, I hate being trite. I'm not a, I'm not an over-spiritualizer, but I, I really do feel like it was the Holy Spirit just, you know, kicking me in the butt and saying, you, you've got to say something. You can't just sit here and be miserable. It's not honest and it's not helpful. And so I just, I just spoke up. And I, I mean, I really, I didn't know what was going to happen. I figured, I figured there was a good chance they would just say, well, that's nice, Brett. Like, I'm, so, I'm sorry you're struggling. And then we would kind of go on and you know, I would just start missing groups and eventually just sort of fade away, you know, oh, I can't make it this week. I can't make it that week. And, and instead the opposite happened. I mean, it was just, we were so bonded and I'll, I'll never forget about three or four months after that, my, my business is spiraling. We, we have a software company and the, the tech market crashed. Yeah. And so all the, all, we yeah. had some venture money that was supposed to come in It vaporized yeah. I tell people the first round of funding for a company like this, I call it the three F's round, friends, family, and fools. Yeah. And I had my money in it. I had my family's money in it. We had my friends in it. My dad was involved in yeah. it. And the fools were the banks and they had loaned us a bunch of money. And so Ooh. the company's spiraling. I'm calling investors, like begging them for funding so I could make the next payroll. And so I called my wife and I said, hey, I'm not going to go to my group tonight. I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm weary, you know? And my wife said, you need it now Are you more kidding than me? ever. Yeah. When you feel like this, that's when you need those guys. So don't come home. Like, we're fine. We're, we really, we're good. You've been the best dad, the best husband you've been really? for a long time. And it's because of this group. So you need to go. And we'll be, we'll be here when you're done. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll go. And so that group just changed my life, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. it was it was incredible. It was really incredible. So you know, I had typical group. I had, I was close with the guys and then I had a couple guys that I was really close with. And, um, you know, so I met with the guys during the week and then one or two of those guys, all, all of us kind of had a couple guys in the group and we'd get together outside of the group too. And so we were really locked in relationally, spiritually. We were pulling for each other. We were straight with each other. 
and you know, it, it, it kind of pulled me through. So the company went out of business. We spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. The toilet had flushed, you know, so it was just a matter of how long it was going to take yeah. for it to go down the drain. And so towards the end of that year, I, I told that we, we'd grown from six to 36 employees. We were back down to six employees again. I had to tell everybody, I can, we, you know, we can pay you for another month or so, but you got to go find jobs. And so my friend Jim, saucer Jim, said, uh, hey, I think Pat Morley's looking for a guy like you. And I'm sitting here with a book written by Pat Morley. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, dude, there's a ministry in Orlando that this guy runs. And they just lost somebody. And um, I go to his Bible study on Friday mornings. And he told us they just lost somebody. And I, sounds like your skill set. And so I went and I got an interview with them. And so we shut the company down the first Friday in November of 2000. And the last Friday of November in 2000, I walked in as a new employee at Man in the Mirror. What was the role? I was a program manager for their seminar program to do men's events in churches. And I walked around on eggshells for the first three months. Because, you know, in a job interview for a Christian organization, you don't mention that you almost blew up your marriage and you just took a company into bankruptcy. You just, you know, know, it's not the top thing that you talk about in your job interview. And uh, they knew. They knew all along. And uh, they just loved me through it, you know. So it was great. So I met a guy in Man in the Mirror the first few months. There was a guy that was the executive vice president of the ministry, David Delk. And David became my discipler and on top of these guys, but like really one-on-one. And there was a- How so? What did that look like? Yeah. So there's a convenience store. We were in a little strip mall office complex and there's a convenience store up at the corner. It was about a 10 minute walk. And David and I would walk up to the convenience store most mornings, probably four days a week, we would walk up to the convenience store, we'd get a big, big bucket of soda, you know, and then we'd walk back. And so 10 minutes up, 10 minutes back, 10 minutes up, 10 minutes back. And so I, David and I worked together for 16 years and I estimated, I actually figured this out once, I estimated that David and I probably spent 25,000 minutes walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, of, of course, at first it was, you know, how's that project you're working on? How's the Boston team that I was rooting for during that season do? And, um, but, it, but it quickly evolved to, you know, how's your family? What are you struggling with? What can I help you with? And so we, he, just, he just really leaned in and invested his life in me. And he was only a year older than me, but he was absolutely a spiritual father to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love David. You know, he's my friend to this day. We talk a few times a week still on the phone and he's up in South Carolina now, but um, mm. we're, we're still good, good friends. How did moving over there translate into your family? Into man in the mirror? No, no. Moving over. Yeah. Moving over to man in the yeah. mirror translate into the kind of husband that you were and the kind of father that you were. Well, you know, when you're working for a Christian men's ministry and you're talking to guys about how to be a good dad and how to be a good husband and what, you know, really getting into scripture a lot more, you know, we met, Every Tuesday, we had staff meeting, and there was devotional time at the beginning of a staff meeting. Every Thursday, we met for prayer, and we prayed for each other. And, you know, the whole fabric of the ministry was how do we help men live godly lives? And to this day, we really are serious about the men that work for us. Mm. Are, are you living a godly life? Are you mm. following Christ? Are you yeah. leading your family well? Yeah. And I've had, it's interesting over the years, there's, there's been many women that have come to work at Man in the Mirror. And I would say 75% of them have been hurt by men. And so they come to Man in the Mirror and I, I've heard this story over and over again. I, I needed a job, but what I got was, I got hope. I got hope back because I was surrounded by these men that were serious about their faith and serious about their commitments to their families and to their marriages. And it just restored hope in my heart that there is good, there are good men there are good godly men in the world. And, um, and so that's been a sort of a side blessing of Man in the Mirror, just on the staff level to see that kind of interaction and, and personal growth for people. So talk about your progress through the ranks at Man in the Mirror. Yeah, you know, we're a small, we're typical. I tell people um, our ministry is a, is a typical small company. You know, we've got a budget, we've got payroll, we've got strategic plans, we've got products, we've got, the, the, the one difference is, is that we can raise money so we don't have to sell products at a profit. We can sell products and get them into churches and then raise the difference to run the organization. 
And so, you know, it's, it's a business and um, it's, it's a mission, but it's, it's a business too. We have to use good business principles and, you know, all good business principles come from scripture uh, eventually. And it's just been amazing to be in an organization um, where we're not just, we don't just have a message, but, you know, it's preached internally first and then it spills out into the way that we serve churches and serve men. Let's talk about it. What do you guys do? We, are, we focus on men's discipleship in the local church. And so we... I guess, I guess probably first, yeah. talk about the book. Yeah. So, so Man in, in the, the Mirror... And the history of the book and how that yeah. came about. And. So Man in the Mirror started as a Bible study in a bar in 1986. Pat Morley was a very successful commercial real estate developer here in Orlando. And his own story is profound. He had, you know, as he says, he had, he had tricked a, a godly woman into thinking he was a Christian and got her to marry him and then realized that he really wasn't a Christian. And so he came to Christ, was discipled by men, ended up on the board of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And Bill Bright challenged him to start a Bible study. And so he started a Bible study in a friend's bar on Friday mornings. In 1989, he had done a series called 24 Problems That Men Face. And somebody said, hey, Pat, that's, that would be a good book. Why don't you write those Bible study lessons into a book? And so by the end of 89, he had written the book, The Man in the Mirror, went to the publisher. Unfortunately, between the time that Pat put the book in at the publisher and they had all their plans, the Michael Jackson song came out, Man in the Mirror, like right in the middle of that. And so the song and the book came out within like months of each other, which we've lived with now for for uh, 33 years. Yeah. So Pat wrote this book, had this Bible study. Over the 90s, they started doing men's events, you know, speaking in churches. Pat just kept writing books. And I, I came in 2000, and so we had a, at the time that I came, we had a very active men's event ministry. So we were, we provided content for a church, and we, which we still do, for a church to do a men's event for their guys. But then the goal of the event is to get guys into small groups. So we'll go into a church and do a men's event, and 80% of the guys will join a small group on the spot in the mm. group. We've got a pretty wow. straightforward process of making it happen right on wow. the spot. We put them in six-week small groups. And then many of them extend beyond that, but we just ask them for a six-week commitment. And then Pat's books have been a great ministry. We've put 10 million copies of Pat's books in men's hands, often at a steep discount through a Books by the Box program. Um, then that developed into leadership training. So we wrote a book called No Man Left Behind, which really gives churches a strategy, a discipleship strategy to reach every man in their church. Uh, not just the guys that go to men's ministry stuff, but really men's discipleship as a focus rather than a program yeah. focus. And then in 2011, uh, we started this initiative to put area directors, so men's discipleship experts, in as many cities around the country as we could. So we have 50 guys today who are raise their own support, and they work as domestic missionaries in these communities. And so they'll go into a church and they'll say, hey, I'm I'm John Smith from Man in the Mirror. We, we help churches disciple their men effectively. I, I would just like to help. And my, my services don't cost you anything because people support me. And so those guys, like last year, those guys worked with 1,800 churches around the country. And then about five years ago, a group of guys from Asia called us up and they said, hey, we've been using Man in the Mirror materials in Malaysia. Could we be your Man in the Mirror Asia ministry? And so now there's 42 groups in five countries throughout Southeast Asia. Wow. And they're doing their first big conference in July. I'm going to fly out with uh, Pat Morley to, to do a conference at the end of July. So, yeah, so it's been fun. So the, the thing has been, like, how do we help churches disciple their men more effectively? How do we help churches think of every man in their church as part of their men's ministry, not just the guys that go to their men's only activities? Yeah. Um, so how do we capture the potential of every interaction a church has with every man? and use that to disciple them effectively. And then uh, when COVID hit, there's this decline that's happened in the church. The, the, I'm not sure I'm familiar, but there's this thing called the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And so nuns are people that say that they have no religious, religious affiliation. And the group of people that say they have no religious affiliation is the fastest growing religious group in the United States right now. And it's being led primarily by millennials and Gen Z who are exiting the church. And now the children of millennials that have exited the church, they're not even, they don't even have a church experience. Gallup has done a poll for 80 years, ask people, do you attend church regularly? And for the first time since they've been doing the poll this year, it's less than 50% of people that say that they attend church regularly. 
And so we took a look at that and we're like, what, what do we need to do? How can we reach these younger guys more effectively? And we, we had heard this from before COVID, but really COVID accelerated that hard because all the cultural Christians didn't come back to church. You know, when the churches opened back up, the cultural Christians had gotten used to watching, well, they, they watched church in their pajamas for a few weeks and then they just started booking tea times and, and outings and just not, and not going back. And so we did, we really decided over the last couple of years that we were going to do a, a focus, uh, sort of a cultural focus on the church. And so we, we still do the other stuff that we do, but we've taken a really uh, renewed interest in younger men. And our strategy is to recruit older men, older mature Christian men to become spiritual fathers for younger men with the idea that we will say to a pastor, how would you like to create a culture in your church where every young man knows that an older man is going to approach them and ask them to spend time with them? Mm-hmm. Where, where the older guys are, are trained and equipped to invest intentionally in the lives of younger men. Because one of the things that we found is that you can get a young guy to go to church, it's keeping them there that's the problem. And when you ask young men why they've de-churched, why they've left church, a lot of times they'll just say, well, I just, I had no friends there. I didn't feel a connection there. You would think it was like the culture war stuff. And there's a little bit of that, but vast, the vast majority is really? relational. And the, and the two things they're missing are intentional spiritual friendships with men their own age and what we call elderly elders, older men who are living a life that's worth imitating. Like Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, young guys look around a lot in the church and they don't really see older guys whose lives they want to imitate. And so how can we train and equip these older men to live lives that are, that are worthy of imitation and then help those guys invest in the lives of younger men? And so that's our big focus right now is, is a program we're calling 10,000 Spiritual Fathers. So our goal is in the next three years to raise up 10,000 mature Christian men in the in the second half of their life, second half of their adulthood, to engage in young men in the first half of their adult life and really you know, walk alongside them, not be a teacher, not even be a mentor. I don't even like the word mentor or coach. I think the, the discipleship models that we've had historically are teacher, coach, and mentor. So a teacher imparts information in a classroom setting and then sends the person out. And a coach tells, you know, gives you skills and tells you a game plan, but then you go play the game and they stay on the sidelines. And even a mentor says, hey, I have all these experiences that I've had and I'm gonna impart my wisdom to you of my experience, but then you go and live your life. And so the analogy I prefer is a mountain guide. So if you go to climb Mount Everest, you hire a guide and the guide doesn't like, you don't get to the bottom of the mountain and he gives you a map of the mountain, shows you a pile of equipment, tells you to grab what you need, gives you a book on mountain climbing and then says, hey, there's the peak, go get him, tiger. You know, he goes with you on the journey. And so that's what we wanna do. We wanna inspire men to go with other men on the journey. And I'll tell you my biggest pattern for it all goes back to my fraternity in college. I learned more about discipleship from the men in my fraternity, from my crazy, drunken, idiotic fraternity brothers. You know, when I was a pledge, I had a big brother and that big brother walked along with me the whole way until I became a brother. And he had this material that he had to help me learn. Some of it was dumb, but a lot of it was good values-based stuff. We lived life together. We studied together. We had fun together and we did service projects together. We lived our lives together. And I know that's a college setting and it's not, you know, it's not, you know, in some senses a real world setting, but I learned so many things I've taken so many lessons that I learned as a fraternity brother um, on the relational side and now applying this to how are men supposed to disciple each other, supposed to spend time together, to walk alongside each other. The older guys take the younger guys under their wing. And then what what does a pledge become? He becomes a brother and then he becomes a big brother to the next pledge that comes along. And just looking at that reproduction in the idea of discipleship and then putting that into churches and seeing the mature men invest in the younger men. Hmm. So that was a lot, but that's, that's where we're going. That's amazing. How's that going? Well, we did, we did a pilot project last year in seven cities. We were hoping to get 500 men to sign up for a, a orientation program and for, for um, 200 of those guys to follow through. And we had over 500 sign up and 300 guys signed up to follow through. So our official launch is this fall, August and September. And, um, our goal is, is, um, a thousand men 
in 50 cities, so just 20 men per city, um, two churches per city. That's our goal. I'm hoping that we that we exceed that. But we got these 50 guys all around the country, so we're hoping that they'll each find two churches to work with. They're already working with each guy's working with anywhere from 20 to 50 churches, so the they can find two churches that want to create this culture of of intergenerational discipleship in their church, and we're going to give them tracks to run on. So I, I'm I'm excited. I'm really excited. It'll be really interesting to hear yeah. how that how that comes together, yeah. how that develops. Yeah. And definitely a prayer point for the Holy Smoke listeners. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hope so. So, kids? Two. I have a, a 28-year-old daughter and a 26-year-old son. And uh, they are awesome kids. They, you know, they grew up in the church. My son uh, took the road of seminary and uh, went to be a youth pick out about halfway through and said, I, I want to get some experience before I go any farther. So he went to work in a church in Chattanooga as a youth pastor. Yeah. And um, he's done that for three years and he's, he's a little burnt out on that. So he's, he's trying to figure out what's next for him. And luckily his church is fantastic and they're mm. helping him figure those next steps out. And my daughter is the apple of my eye. She's my she's a, a female version of me. We have very similar personalities, but she has um, completely abandoned her faith. So that's been really, really hard. The best part about it is that she has not abandoned her relationship with her mom and me. And so we uh, have a great relationship. She's my park buddy. We go to Universal Studios all the time together and we just have a great relationship mm. in the midst of her, you know, really becoming a very worldly person. And so we have these great conversations about faith and and uh, her frustration with it. Some of the damage that she's experienced in church, the whole purity culture thing really was not a good thing for her. And uh, so we're, we're on a journey. I'd recommend that you um, turn her on to a, a podcast called Java with Julie. Mm. Julie. Dr. Julie Slattery, clinical psychologist. I used to work with her at Focus. She felt this call for women's ministry, and uh, she created this this ministry called Authentic Intimacy, and it's all about healing, emotional, physical, spiritual intimacy. Wow! And um, they've been very critical of of the purity culture oh, yeah. and was, how it got wrong, and really terrible. what biblical sexuality is all about. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We could do a whole nother conversation about that, but yeah. I have a lot of criticism of the purity culture as well, just how it basically told... It set us up. It, well, it told men that you're sexual beings and that it's really a woman's responsibility. Your your sexual purity is really a wom- the woman's responsibility. And, you know, they're supposed to s- stay chaste and un... You know, un- not tempting and that guys are just, you know, I, powerless. I didn't, I didn't pick that up as much as if you save yourself... God is going to bless you with this amazing sexual relationship and you're going to have the greatest sex of your life. And I, for years, I mean, literally, went, I, I went into my marriage, not a virgin. Mm-hmm. And over the course of those years, I thought that because I had had sex before marriage, that that was the reason why I didn't have a great sexual relationship mm. with my wife. And it really kind of set me up to this place where I, I remember having the talk about the, with the boys about the birds and the bees. And I was like, listen, save yourself because, and I was carrying some of that still over. And I was like, I regret having sex before your mother. Thinking in my mind, I didn't say it out loud, but thinking in my mind, if I had waited and if she had waited, we'd have this great marriage. And that's not the case. Right, right. Well, she she got the message that if you are, not pure, it, like if you, if you don't save yourself, you're ruined, you're stained. And so when she had some experiences in college that were not chaste, yeah. in her mind, it, it clicked a toggle. And she's like, well, I'm not qualified. I've become completely disqualified from the Christian life. Mm. And, um, you know, so I, I feel like a lot of my life with her anyway, is trying to sort of undo that damage and help her understand what the gospel really is as opposed to this legalistic, screwed up um, view of what grace is and what yeah. Jesus does for you. And and uh, yeah, so. What does your daughter do? She's in IT. She's a, a highly successful IT professional now making dumb money, I tell her. And uh, 
and uh, works from home. And actually, it's just about to move back in with us. So our relationship's not that bad. She's trying to figure out where she really wants to live. She's selling her condo that she has and really? moving in with us for a few months until she figures out what's next. So Is she looking to leave Orlando or just... I mean, it's a possibility. I think she may probably move to maybe Chattanooga where my son is or to Tampa with her best friend and, and from college. And so we'll see what happens. But that's another thing. Everybody wow. in Holy Smoke can pray, can pray for my daughter and son. So That's cool. That's cool. So, all right, Brett Clemmer, let's get to rapid fire questions. All right. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Rapid fire. How's that stick treating you? It's awesome. Yeah, it's really good. It's nice and smooth. When did you first try cigars or pipe? Ooh, um, golly. Well, I dipped in college and uh, a little bit after college. And I would probably say my pastor, <laughs> my Presbyterian pastor, I tell him it's your fault that I drink Starbucks coffee and smoke cigars because uh, he's the one, we would have these long conversations I love Reformed theology now, and he's the one that sort of introduced me to that. So we'd have these long conversations about the sovereignty of God over a cigar and a and a coffee, and and then I met Kay, like everybody. I met Kay five five years ago, maybe, and I was in in another ministry office, and Kay came in, and somebody said to me, "Oh, do you smoke cigars?" And I'm like, "I'm like, yeah, once in a while." I was like, "Oh, you need to meet this guy, Kay," and he's there in a Hawaiian shirt and sandals, you know, and. That's and he's Kay. like, oh, I'm, I got this group called Holy Smokes. You got to become a part of that. And so. Hawaiian shirt and sandals. That's Kay's business attire. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, about probably probably five years seriously then. Favorite cigar? Oliva V, the one you're smoking. I love Melania's and and uh, I love the Solomon's. But Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? I have a couple Opus X's in my um humidor that somebody gave me, but I, I smoked the most expensive one that I bought was a Finca Santa Fe. And, uh, they're a little bit cheaper now than they were then, but I think it was a $35 cigar. I am not, uh, I'm not breaking the bank with my cigar purchases. Best dollar for dollar cigar you smoked. They're not always this good, but, um, I've smoked some Newman seconds that are fantastic. Really? Yeah. And, and since we're here, they're, they're down in, outside of Tampa so we can go down there and get them. I've gotten a, a couple batches that were unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Huh. I'll have to check that out. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Um, I go to a cigar shop in Sanford called Executive Cigar. And so uh, if I buy one retail, that's where I'm getting it, smoking by the lakeside up there. But online, I'm either on Cigar Page or Cigar Bid. Your splurge cigar? You're going to celebrate something? Uh, probably a Liga. Probably a Liga Pravada, yeah. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? A really good weeded bourbon, Ragged Branch or Woodford, or. But uh, if I'm just drinking something that's non-alcoholic, a, a nice Dr Pepper with cream soda zero is my favorite to go with it, or or a nice cup of coffee. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Ah, uh, that I've met through cigars. Well, besides you. I, I guess Kay would be, probably be the most interesting person I've met through cigars with all that he's done. How many times have people answered that? It's Kay, yeah. Kay, Kay is the number one. Yeah, I bet. What's your most memorable cigar experience? Wow. When, uh, when I was at my prior church with my pastor that got me smoking cigars, my most memorable cigar was with him. Uh, I had a beef with somebody uh, in the church. They had 
in my opinion, not treated my wife very well. And, and so I was talking to my pastor about it and he said, well, we, we got to work this out. And I'm like, all right, I, I mean, I'll, I'll work it out, but this guy's a jerk. <laughs> and he said, all right, um, well, let's talk about it some more. Can you come see me in my office next week? And so we set up a time for me to come and, and meet and talk about it. And so when I walked in the office, that guy was there with my pastor and there were three cigars on the table and an air purifier running in my pastor's study. And we sat and smoked cigars together and talked it out. And it was great. Mm. Yeah, it was great. You ever do pipe? A little bit. Yeah, I can't keep it lit. <laughs> I cannot keep it lit. I either put too much in or not enough tobacco in or I, I don't know. So I would love to get better at it. Marvel or DC or neither? Uh, well, if I'm gonna watch one, it's probably a Marvel. Um, I'm not really into superhero movies. More a sci-fi and war movie guy. All right, so. my next one, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. All right. Yeah. Who's your favorite Star Trek character? Probably Picard. Just uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. flawed, a flawed man who's, who's making it work. Although, the, there's the... Uh, now I sound like a total nerd here. Uh, there's the new one called Strange New World that has Anson Mount is playing uh, Captain Pike. It's like a mm-hmm. precursor to it. And I saw Anson Mount in this on, on this Netflix series. I think it was a Netflix series called um, Road to Hell, I think it was called. Anyways, uh, uh, about building the train, the Intercontinental mm-hmm. Railroad. Mm-hmm. And he plays this amazing character in it. So then when he went to the Star Trek franchise and started playing a character there, I love that. May not be for the podcast, but the fascinating thing about it, and the plot is that he knows when he's going to die in eight years. So since he knows when he's going to die. Pike does? Captain Pike? Captain Pike does. He had yeah. a vision. Since he knows when he's going to die, it, it impacts every decision that he makes. Really? Because he'll go into high-risk situations knowing he's not going to die in them because he knows when he's going to die. And so it's interesting, the morality of how do I act when I know I'm going to be safe but I don't really know how it's going to affect everybody else around me. So I love that. I love that morality play, that sort of wheels within wheels decision-making. That's it's kind cool. Of, it's kind of fun, yeah. That's cool. I've kind of stopped really following Star Trek really once I was in, I'd say, college, done with college. Yeah. I was huge into Star Trek when, yeah. I, was, when I was in high school. One of my, my, one of my cousins was, we had played Starfleet Battles. And, yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. I, I just remember really digging it, and then and then that when I was in high school is when Next Generation came out. And yeah. I was a big oh, Next yeah. Generation fan. Oh yeah, and then when they made the movies with Chris Pine and um, Carl Urban plays Doctor McCoy, mm-hmm. and he is hilarious. He is, yeah, he's the only character I think that's better than the, than the, the original. original actor. Yeah, DeForest Kelly, right? Yeah, DeForest Kelly. Yeah. yeah. Sports teams, obviously Boston. Boston, yeah. I love the I love the Patriots. Um, Probably the Patriots and the Red Sox from the two that I follow the most. Celt- I love the Celtics and the Bruins too. But and then I, I'm a Tom Brady fan, so when he came down to the Bucks, I was rooting hard for him. Any other teams that you're into? Have you I mean, adopted I follow, any? I follow the Magic because they're here. I knew Shaq back in the day. Really? Um, yeah, he was involved with the Coalition for the Homeless when I was working at the shelter, and oh. he's a fantastic guy. He's hilarious. He's got a huge heart. He came two Thanksgivings in a row at like nine o'clock in the morning. Seven hundred bed shelter. Brought all the food cooks his family and they stayed all day like nine to six both years he ate probably five different thanksgiving meals during the day signed everything that anybody put in front of him without blinking and i have a picture of him holding my my uh my daughter's born in august so she was three months old and i have a picture of her holding him holding my daughter in his hand and she my three-month-old fits in his hand (laughs) and because he was just a he is just a giant human being he's not like all gangly like a lot of tall guards oh are. yeah he's just a large yeah. person and, he, he, and, he was an enforcer in oh, the middle and just a, uh, yeah I, and, I remember. And on, honestly like a really a really good guy very funny and uh a very big heart he moved i think his last year at lsu was my senior year of high school and i was just starting to get into college basketball yeah. and i remember watching him going my god what he would do for my milwaukee bucks oh yeah and and, yeah, uh, the magic got uh, him. Yeah, yeah, magic got him. The original and, Superman. And, and, yeah. and, but yet, I, I, 
I really started following the Magic. Magic kind of became yeah. my second favorite team. They were great. because of him and Penny. They had him and Penny, and then uh, the guy that came Horse down Grant. from the Raptors, um, Tracy McGrady, came down. Yeah, and he was he was amazing too. Yeah, Horace Grant, and yeah, it was they were fun years to watch. Yeah, I, I remember playing NBA Jam in college, and one of my go to teams in NBA Jam was the Magic <laughs> because of Shaq, Penny, yeah. and Horace. Yeah. Favorite athlete when you were a kid. You know, I, I, 76, Bruce Jenner won the decathlon, and that yeah. was a pretty cool thing to watch. And he was kind of a, on all the Wheaties boxes and uh, kind of a weird a weird thing to say today, but he was, <laughs> he was a great athlete to watch. And then um, this is kind of random, but there was a, a safety that played for the Redskins. Um, when, I was, when I was little, my, we lived in Virginia for a few years, and my mom's family was all in Virginia. I remember Sunday afternoons after church, 20 or 30 people being at my grandmother's house every Sunday afternoon for dinner. And then all the men would go and watch the Redskins. And my dad worked for Dean Witter, I think, and as a broker and Brig Owens was a safety for the Redskins and he was my dad's client. And so I got to meet Brig Owens. You know, it's, I loved him yeah. because I met him and yeah. I was a little kid and he was this big football player. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Favorite food? I like a lot of things. I don't, I, I would... Probably pulled pork, I guess, would be my my favorite. But I'll eat just about anything, except for durian. Have you ever had durian? <laughs> durian yes. is the most disgusting thing that's yes. ever. That I don't know what God was thinking when he when he made durian. Uh, but I've had it in Asia, and it is it's like eating gasoline. So and yes. anybody that's listening to this, you either love durian or you hate it. And I'm on the hate side. Funny story, boys and I, and girl I'm dating, the four of us went out to this Asian restaurant and they had a durian cake. Oh. This like little pieces of durian in it. It was kind of like a sponge cake roll and and I'm we're, so sorry. <laughs> so so we try it and Caleb's, I, I'm gluten free so I can't eat it, but all of them try it and they were like this isn't bad. The way in which they prepared it, it was good and Amanda was like, okay you need to try real durian because, <laughs> because because it is something completely different. And she described it, and the boys were like, oh, it became this eating challenge. I've got two right. teen boys, so this became an oh, eating yeah. challenge. I can imagine. So we head directly for the Asian market, kind of on the southeast side of Colorado Springs. And we go in, and we find uh, some frozen durian. We find some uh, durian mochi. And then we find some durian wafers and we take the, that back to the house. And I have this as a video on Dropbox. <laughs> it used to be on my phone, but I needed to clear some space on Dropbox. And it's all of us trying durian. So I couldn't do the, 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 the stuff that had, I didn't, could, couldn't do the wafers. So they, everyone did the wafers and uh, then we did the mochi and the mochi was really good. I had some gluten-free and then we had the durian. <laughs> it was the funniest crap I have ever I haven't laughed that Amanda and I, all four of us laughed harder than we, than we've laughed in years. And it's Caleb trying it and him eating it and he's good. And then all of a sudden he starts gagging. (laughs) It's no longer in his mouth. (laughs) We're rolling. Matthew eats it and, and he's doing fine. And he goes into the, into the kitchen to get some water and he throws up in the sink. I believe it. (laughs) Early in my days at man in the mirror, I got to go to Singapore in 02, my dad was born in Hong Kong. His parents were missionaries in China. And so my dream had been to take my dad back to China. So when they asked me to go to Singapore, I said, can I bring my dad with me? And then we stopped in China on the way back and I got to go see where he lived and it was, it was really cool. Really? So I'm in, I'm in Singapore and this, this uh, American expat had brought me in and then his wife said, oh, oh, this is, this is a fruit that's a delicacy in Singapore. And I'm like, oh, it is? And she goes, yeah, and she takes a spoonful and I go, what is it? And as, as I said, what is it? She like shoved a spoonful of it in my mouth. And I just remember going like, what, what is that? I'm like tr- looking for a place to spit it out. And of course, everybody at the table is laughing at me. And I'm like, that tastes like gasoline. And, and they, they thought it was the funniest thing. So that was my, dur- my one and only durian experience. I had dog a week later. The dog was way better than the durian. So <laughs> oddly enough, my next question is dogs, cats, neither or both. Not for eating, but for having as pets. <laughs> uh, I would, I would love to have a dog. My wife is a non-animal person, so my daughter though has a pit who I love Harley, and Harley loves me, 
And so I'm really excited my daughter's moving in with us because Harley comes with her. So I love dogs. Nickname growing up or in college? In high school, I had a derisive nickname called of Hollywood. It has a long story that goes with it. Let's hear it. In middle school, in junior high school, and high school, I was I had I had no confidence problems at all. I mm-hmm. wasn't super popular, but I didn't really care. And but I, I was super confident. And so my sister one day convinced me to part my hair down the middle. And so for a week, I would walk down the hallways and I would shake my head to get my f- hair out of my face because it was parted in the middle. Yeah. And but it looked like I was sort of like a model in the wind and so people started calling me Hollywood and uh, I I uh, I moved the part after that but the name stuck a little bit. So <laughs> What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Whenever we play this game I always say I spent 2 years in a juvenile detention shelter but it's really cuz I was running it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know I met uh, Mike Dukakis once. It was pretty interesting. And uh, when he was the governor of Massachusetts, I don't, I don't know that I have really a lot of interesting things. You're a reader. I love to read. What's your favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible? I like authors. Hmm. Um, so I like um, Lee Child and the Jack Reacher books. I love another author named Child Preston Child. They write these uh, Pendergast detective novels that are semi-supernatural. I kind of enjoy those. Mm-hmm. On the nonfiction side, I'm reading a really good book right now. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called Overcoming Apathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really a really good book. Well, on overcoming apathy. And, you know, when you're, for me anyway, being in ministry for so long, there comes a point where it sort of becomes mundane. And I really felt like I was beginning to get, mm. I don't know if burned out is the right word, but just a little apathetic. So that's been, that's been a great book. Name three things that you're thankful for at this season in your life. Well, I'm really thankful that Christ saved me. I don't want to sound trite, but that's, that's just a, well, you know, when I think about it, it's, it's an incredible thing. Really thankful for my family. My my wife and I are probably never at a better point than we mm-hmm. have been now than we are now. I you know I've all through our marriage I've tried to pray with my wife and it's always been weird and hard and ob- obligatory and irregular. And for the last probably four or five months, maybe six months, we've just fallen into this desire and pattern of praying together in the mornings and Mm -hmm. i'm often late for work now because i don't give it enough time and um she usually gets up when i when i leave for work and so i'll wake her up and i'll just sit on the bed and and we'll pray together and what i think is going to be just a couple minutes will turn into 10 or 15 so i'm really thankful for that and and the fact that i still have a relationship with my daughter even as she's struggling and i would say the third thing i'm thankful for is I'm, i'm in this great church i became a elder in November and our church elders are pastors. And so it's a small church. I've never been in a really small church before. So it was a hundred when I got there, it's 200 now. Yeah. And we have a lot of Bible college students in the church, which is brings an incredible flavor to the church. You know, these, these Bible college kids, they're so intellectually advanced, but they're emotionally still teenagers. And so navigating that interesting a little thing there, but just having a flock that I feel so much love and responsibility for, um, as one of the three elders. And so mm-hmm. I just, I just love our church, I, incredible community, incredible hospitality in the church. If you were stranded on, on a desert Island with only one movie, what would that be? We were soldiers. Ooh. Yeah. I love that movie. Mel Gibson and, and, uh, about that first air cavalry and the story of them in Vietnam. Yeah. If you could be any animal, what would you be? I think an elephant. Ooh, why? Uh, they're smart. They're emotionally very connected. They're very, they love community. You know, they're in, we're learning, as we learn more and more, we see that they really live in community with each other. The older males teach the younger males we've learned and great sense of family. And yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to probably be an elephant in this world, but I love, I love the nobility and the, regalness of elephants it's my dad's favorite animal too really yeah if you could live anywhere where would that be well i love chattanooga which is where my son happens to be i when he was looking for a job i'm like look in chattanooga um so i love chattanooga and i also i just i love montana 
uh, if I could live in a state, I'd live in Montana. And uh, if I could live in a city, I'd live in Chattanooga. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think my greatest strength is probably that I can see where I want to go or where I can see the potential in things. I can sort of envision, for instance, for our organization, I can envision where I think we should be in five years, for instance, and rally people around that vision. I would say my greatest weakness is that um, I can get really um, focused on something and and sort of not recognize that people aren't with me yet. And uh, I, I think it's probably the flip side of the vision strength is that I can really, I can get down the road and not not making sure that people are along yet. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? Uh, my dad. My dad was just such a godly man. He died four years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just his example. My dad was a man who really discipled intuitively, instinctively, not sort of formulaically or programmatically. And, and so I saw that in my own life in many, many conversations. I remember my favorite conversation with my dad was I was in college. I really wasn't walking with the Lord. I really didn't know what I believed. I was on Christmas break. My dad and I used to go go-karting. Even on vacation, we'd find a go-kart track to go to and we'd go go-karting together. And we'd knock the crap out of each other on the go-kart track. But we were sitting outside a go-kart track and I felt like I had to talk to him. And so I said, Dad, I just need you to know that, um, you know, I, I believe in God, but I don't really believe he's that personal mm-hmm. or that he really cares about me. Like, mm-hmm. sort of big guy upstairs. Yeah. And then I cringed, like I was waiting for my dad to start giving me the argument or telling me how disappointed he was or something like that. And my dad went, okay. And I went, what? And he said, son, I already know how the story ends. And you're not going through anything that I didn't go through. And there comes a time in every young man's life when your faith has to stop being your parents' faith and it has to start being your own. And so you've reached the end of what my faith can do for you. And now you have to develop your own. And so all I ask is that you be intention that you be serious about it. Don't just walk away, but like decide what you want to believe Investigate. and why you want to believe it. And you know, be intentional. And um, that's but, wise. But, wow, uh, that's wise. And so I had almost the identical conversation with my daughter when she was 25. And I told her about that conversation with my dad, and I told her the same thing. I said, I think I know how the story ends, honey. You know, I think you, I think Jesus loves, I know Jesus loves you, and I, I believe that at one point you really did, you know, your heart was regenerated and you were converted, and now you're lost and you're prodigal and you're, You've reached the the limit of my ability to impart faith to you. You have to figure this out for yourself. So I'm with you. I'm with you on the journey, but this is this is your your journey now, not mine. Mm. Yeah, those are hard things to say to your kid. I never realized how hard that must have been for my dad to say to me until I had to say it to my own daughter. Wow. Wow. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Ooh. Man, that's a funny word because it can be it can be exactly it can have so many different connotations to it. Which is why I ask it because yeah. then I, I get to hear what the other person thinks is success. Yeah, the first person that comes to mind when I think of success is, um, I guess that's probably my dad. You know, just living an authentic life. You know, my dad worked in a in the financial world, and so he was a lone voice you know, for Christ and for faith. And he just never compromised and he was never obnoxious about it, you know? Um, but he was, I saw, I had many opportunities to go do work things with him and I just saw the respect that other people had for him because he, they, they knew where he stood and they knew what he believed in. And I can, at his, at his funeral, <clears throat> you know, he was 86 when he died and so he lost, you know, he moved away and kind of lost touch with a lot of people and to see people descend on the church, go, fly to Michigan to go to his funeral and to get up and say things about the impact that he'd had on their lives. And I can think of a couple in particular that were just amazing. And um, so, you know, that's, you know, he's a man with a legacy. And he, it wasn't, he didn't try to have a legacy. 
he just tried to live an authentic life. And I think that had an impact on a lot of people. Hmm. When you feel overwhelmed or have lost your focus, what do you do? <laughs> I smoke a cigar. Well, when I've lost my focus, I try to get away from things and spend a lot more time in prayer and journaling. When I lose my focus, what I realize is I haven't journaled for a while. I haven't really done more than perfunctory prayer. Even even my prayer time with my wife helps to center me. But But yeah, just being quiet and listening and waiting. How do you want to be remembered? Uh, you know, I'd like to be remembered as a great dad um, and a great husband, somebody that helped other people build God's kingdom. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? I'm, I'm around a lot of ministry people. And I would say there's a lot of ministry people that take themselves way too seriously. Yeah. And so I love being around Holy Smokes guys because there are a lot of great leaders, a lot of men with great accomplishments and great walks with God. And I haven't met hardly anyone that takes themselves too seriously. And so it, what it means to me is it sort of reinforces, I won't say restores, but reinforces my hope in what the Christian life can be, that it's not legalistic, that it's not, uh, you're not putting on a show, you know, that you can be authentic. You can just be around guys that want to talk about spiritual things, but from a real world perspective, not from some kind of theoretical or super Holy Joe perspective. Hmm. If you could have a Holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. I, I will probably two biblical characters. I'd love I'd love to sit down and have a smoke with Peter, with the Apostle Peter, and it's kind of a toss up between Abraham and Joseph. But I'd probably go with Joseph. Just all that he went through. Final question: If we're to meet one year from today, yeah, and I have a bottle of that weeded bourbon <laughs> that is on the top of your list. What are we celebrating? A year from now? Yeah. Oh, I hope we're celebrating a couple thousand spiritual fathers who are investing their lives in younger men and um, a start of a movement of men intentionally reaching back to men behind them and guiding them in the, in the way. How do people find out about Man in the Mirror? Yeah, maninthemirror.org, um, really simple. And uh, lots of lots of resources there. A lot of free resources there. Bible study materials and and articles and and then spiritualfathers.com is the website that's the the place where we're running the spiritual fathers initiative. But maininthemirror.org, spiritualfathers.com. Brett Clemmer, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, thanks, my man. man. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.